The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. We have a very interesting conversation. Now, sometimes I get uh, email and comments where people say, hey, I thought you know you talk about paranormal stuff. This particular topic, whatever it happens to be, whether we're talking about the Beatles or we're talking about topics like the topic we're going to talk about tonight, will say that particular topic isn't paranormal. Well, I want to just be very, very clear here. We do talk about the paranormal in this program, but as my intro says, we talk about the normal, the abnormal, and the paranormal. And one of the things that we delve into quite a bit here are conspiracy discussions. Now, conspiracies can be things that happened many, many years ago that are still being investigated, or they could be going on right under our nose. And some people are contending, and I'm starting to see the light here, that there is a conspiracy happening as we speak to all of us. And that is the conspiracy related to these COVID-19 lockdowns. We're going to have a guest on tonight that's going to talk about a book he's written. Michael Beatrice is our guest, and he'll be talking about his book called COVID-19 and the Lockdowns. And he is going to be talking about uh, evidence and uh, information that you may not be familiar with that may sway your opinion one way or another when it comes to lockdowns as a response to what we've seen with a global pandemic, a viral pandemic, something that we completely uh, were taken by surprise. The only people that weren't taken by surprise was China, because that's where it started. But they did not give us all the information, and we were hit uh, with a right hook and a left hook and a gut punch all at the same time, and we're still feeling the effects of all of that. Don't forget to subscribe to us on uh, YouTube. The YouTube channel is uh, very easy to find. Just go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. And when when you find it, yeah, they do have green slime. That's right, Mary Grace. Um, And when you do find... Um, find the channel, J.V. Johnson, again, just uh, subscribe. There's no fee to subscribe. Also, find us on Twitch. Twitch channel uh, has a couple of different options. They've got the option to follow, which is there's no charge, and there's a subscribe option there as well. The subscribe option does have a fee associated with it, but if you have Amazon Prime, you can link your Amazon Prime account to that channel, to my channel on Twitch, and then there's no fee and you become a subscriber. But you have to redo that every month. I think there's some folks who have done that that have let it uh, lapse and they need to jump back in Twitch and reestablish that connection between the JV Johnson Twitch channel and their Amazon Prime account. So uh, I don't have anything else to bring to you as we get started this week. I'm just anxious to have this conversation because I think we need to open our ears and open our eyes and consider What is happening around us? And I don't necessarily mean you have to agree. I'm just saying the debate needs to be allowed to happen. And that's the biggest problem I see facing us as a nation right now. You can't have a debate. If you are on the wrong side of an orthodoxy, you are just shouted down or or censored in one way or another. And if you notice the title of my uh, YouTube stream tonight, I had to be clever with the uh, way I spelled things in order to hope I don't get in some way censored. That's not the American way. It's not the America I grew up in love with. Anyway, (laughs) I'm 
not going to preach. I'm going to leave the preaching to somebody else. I'm going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll have our guest for the night on. Again, uh, Michael Beatrice is an author. His book is called COVID-19 and the Lockdowns, and that's what we'll be talking about tonight on Beyond Reality. Hey, gang, JV here. You know that great nutrition can lead to a great life. Healthy, happy, rewarding. But that nutrition simply cannot be found in the foods we eat alone. Take a minute and assess your health, the way you feel, the way your family feels, the way your kids feel. Health is more than just feeling well. It's also making sure you have a strong immune system, especially in these trying times. Vitamins aren't enough alone. In fact, they have to be the right vitamins, the right supplements made from the most effective ingredients. Otherwise, they don't do the job. It makes the world of a difference. There's a new website you can visit that'll help you navigate these ideas and guide you to better health. There's no obligation. Just visit MyHealthRocksNow.com. That's MyHealthRocksNow.com and start feeling better today. I think I did fall asleep in the barber chair. Now, what happened was, so when I go to the uh, the, the haircut place, um, it's not a barber shop per se, but they cut hair, obviously. I go to one of those places, you just walk in, you get the next person up, and I always get the person I don't like. So this time, I tried to be a little stealthy, and I kind of hovered around a little bit until I saw that the person who I don't like had somebody in their chair. And then I walked in, and I got somebody else, which is fine. Um, but she said to me, uh, how do you want, how do you want it done? And I never know how to answer that. All I know is I want it shorter than it is now. I want it out of my face and I don't want to have to come back here for three months or four months would be even better. So she said something about number four and two and one and clip, whatever. And, uh, it is what it is. I don't care. Um, it is, it met my criteria for being out of my face and shorter and I don't have to go back for three to four months. So it met all. All of the rules and criteria I set for that visit, I am very, very pleased with that. Anyway, tonight we're not going to be talking about my hair. We're going to be talking about something far more consequential. Our guest tonight, Michael Beatrice, is from Michigan. He's a graduate of Michigan State University. He lives in Dallas, Texas. He's authored 15 career reference books over 25 years, published by McGraw-Hill. Prior to writing the book we're going to be talking about tonight, which is called COVID-19 Lockdowns, on trial. Michael, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's such an honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much. Hey, listen, you were, you were playing Victim of Love, a song I grew up with, and it made me think, is that what we are during the lockdowns? Are we victims of love? Is that how this is being represented? <laughs> so, unin- uh-huh. so unintentional, such a great song, and man, what a great point to make here. I mean, we're going to get into all of this, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we are in unprecedented times in so many ways right now. Yeah. Where are you, JV? I, I forgot. I'm in upstate New York. Upstate New York. Okay, good. Good. It's been quiet there overall. Good. Okay. Generally, yeah, but you know, it's kind of funny, and I'll just throw this anecdote out uh, just to give you an idea of what's happening here. But, um, you know, we, we saw very few cases. We're in, I'm in Cooperstown, New York, of all places, which was good. devastated by the absence of tourism this year. Devastated. Oh. Unbelievably. Yeah. Um Every one of us is feeling that. Um, I own um, um, some rental property. I'm feeling it that way. Our taxes are going to go through the roof because of the lack of sales tax revenue. All this stuff is, you know, this is there's hell to pay, and it's coming down. It's down the road. But yeah, baseball basically got canceled up there. All the youth baseball. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have uh, a facility here. Uh, it's called Cooperstown Dreams Park, and they bring in yeah. 96 teams a week. 96 teams times times 15 players times generally two parents yeah. and a sibling. All of those people feed the tourism economy here in Cooperstown, and it did not exist. So 
when it shut down in September of 2019, and now it will not reopen at the earliest until June of 2021, that is a long time to go for businesses that have no revenue. Yeah, huge. I mean, it's, you know, it's consequential all over. I mean, uh, you know, small businesses, restaurants, I mean, there's so many, you know, the big companies are able to absorb this, but small companies and, and places that rely on tourism in states that have been locked down, it's it's just devastating. Yeah, and, and no no government program, no PPE, none of this, not PPE, what's the payment protection program, PPP, none of that stuff is going to uh, be enough and last long enough to help some of these businesses. But I want to get back to, to your bit of an awakening here because you called writing this book a calling and when you wrote it you didn't have a deal to write it you just wrote it right so you know prior to this like you called out i'd written a lot of uh, career reference books and so i've always been tied into uh people's careers and employment and just things like that and when the two cruise ships hit uh they were there were two cruise ships that were quarantined in february and march the first one was in japan and the second was um off the coast of California, and they they got covered, you know, quite a bit. Particularly the second one, the the um, Grand Princess, and I was a little dialed into that because I actually took its second voyage, uh, you know, 20 years ago or so. So I'd actually been on that ship, so it was interesting. And when it ported in, if you remember the coverage, it was sort of covered like the Bronco Chase, right? And it yeah, was quarantined, right. set out to sea for four days, and then it came into Oakland and massive coverage, and then nothing really happened. Uh, and so out of the two cruise ships, we had 7,400 passengers and crew, and we ended up with 10 fatalities, all elderly with comorbidities. So, you know, that was un- it's unfortunate, but that's what happened. Ten days later, the Imperial College released their, um, their uh, model predicting in a do-nothing scenario that there would be 2.2 million Americans uh, that would lose their lives to, uh, to COVID-19. Um, and I thought that was really odd because those cruise ships were basically a do-nothing scenario. They were a Petri dish. They were, you know, everybody was cooped up. Uh, it was the opposite of social distancing. It spread before anybody had a chance to have, like, high awareness of it. And so I plugged in the numbers from the model into the cruise ship data, and we should have had 155 fatalities on those cruise ships, and we had 10. And I thought, oh, this is getting... This is going to end up disproportionate. But, and then we locked down. You know, the next day, California locked down first. Illinois and New York were the next day. And, uh, and so when that ended up triggering up to 40 million people unemployed, uh, it, it, that's what sort of connected me based on my other writing background to just sit down and write about it. And I woke up. I, I, my son was home from college. By the way, he's a big baseball kid. He played college baseball over at OU. Oh, wow. Great. Um, so I'm, I'm real dialed into the youth baseball thing. And, uh, and so I just decided to sit down and write a book. And I wrote it in three and a half weeks and then tuned it all up. And, uh, and then when I found out that it would, it would um, be a while to get published by a major publisher, you know, which would take it into 2021, it would get a little bit dated. And honestly, I just felt like there's no reality information. In fact, when I was searching for information that sort of proved in my my premise here, what I uncovered by reconciling the cruise ships with the, uh, the Imperial College model, I couldn't really find anything. Like, I'm doing Google searches and looking for some reality data. And finally, after really after a couple days of hard searching, I, I discovered this guy who I'd never heard of named Alex Berenson, and he was tweeting out some information. 
And he's, uh, do you know who he is? I do, and I love his work. Right. Yeah, Alex has done some, he's done some great work. He's really leading this, uh, he's really leading this, this, this mini movement here. He really is. And, uh, and so I started reading his stuff, and then I fact-checked a lot of his stuff early on to see if, before I, you know, run with everything he's saying, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, that it, it proved down. It did. I actually popped Alex an email right around April 1st and said, man, you're doing some great work, and I really, uh, you know, appreciate you. You're getting a lot of flack on Twitter. But, and he emailed me back and said, you know, you know, it's a courteous response. Thanks a lot. And, uh, and then a few days later, I was like, oh, this is just too much. And so I just decided to sit down and write the book. So many things you said in, in, in that particular answer that I, try, I, I need to get some clarification on. Um, and I'm not sure where to start. So let me just back you all the way up. When you started looking at the cruise ship information, and I, I remember, I remember a cruise ship sitting off of the coast, not being able to dock. I remember this drama right. playing out. Um, but when you sat down and started doing the math, are cruise ship passengers, were they predominantly older people? Do we know what the demographic of those folks was? We do. Uh, we do, and I actually broke it down. I have a whole chapter in my book called The Cruise Ships, and I broke down a little bit of cruise ship history, and I broke down all the demographics, and I actually broke down everything I just shared with you in terms of applying the Imperial College model to that demographic data. I did that. It is a predominantly elderly population, but it's also complemented by you've got, um, you've got a crew that you know, tends to be on the younger side, so right. you've, you've got a bit of a mix. And you don't have people that are equivalent to nursing home people, right? You know, elderly people that are nursing homes. You've got an elderly population, but generally, uh, you know, a healthier elderly population to be sure. And uh, but it was a fascinating exercise because one of the things the the uh, the Imperial College model predicted was that 81% of people would get infected, and they predicted. Uh, a very large number, 900,000 elderly people, you know, I think I'm going off memory right now, but it was mm-hmm. over 75 or something would, would lose their lives. But it was, it was high on the young side, too. Where it really triggered me was that nobody got sick on the young side. So uh, there were very few people that were uh, symptomatic on those cruise ships. Again, the data just, the model just didn't match the data. And I knew we were going off course with something so extreme as, as these lockdowns. Now, when you started writing the book, you said you immediately started trying to search for information and, and get data, and you couldn't find any or you couldn't find much. So again, without getting too far ahead of ourselves in this conversation, was that because the information didn't exist or you were being prohibited from accessing it? Well, so I think it was both, but, but, but it's really contextualizing data that existed, right? So what Alex Berenson did a very, very good job of early on was contextualizing data and highlighting things like, hey, hospitalizations are only, you know, 20% of what the predicted uh, IHME and the Imperial College models were going to say, you know, they were going to be. So, by the way, I'm not, I want to go on, right, I'm not minimizing COVID-19. COVID-19 has right. um, slammed New York City for, for a good, you know, month or six weeks. And it's very real if you are over 75, and if you've got, you know, three or four known comorbidities, it's real. For example, my parents are 89, and they live in Detroit, which got slammed, and we've kind of kept them under shelter really even now. You know, but my 20-year-old son away at college, I told him to live his life as freely as he'd like. Yeah, and again, I want to emphasize the point you just made. We're not 
We're not calling the the virus a hoax. We're not calling the illness a hoax. We're not saying that the pe- there aren't people getting sick and there aren't people dying from this. No, but what we it's are, about a proportion, it's about a proportionate response. Right. That's that's my whole book isn't. You know, I really documented and and said several times in it. And I lost a relative to who was in a care facility in Detroit. Uh, so I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a COVID nineteen believer. It's about what is a proportionate response on the rest of society that that really vastly largely is just not at risk you um wrote the book you uh didn't have a deal but you published it uh and amazon originally wasn't allowing you to sell it what happened here it was blocked or banned or something yeah it's it was so it was interesting i i I really hadn't had a whole lot of publishing type of experience because i've always had i've had one publisher and they basically come to me with every single book I've done saying, hey, would you like to write this? And I've, I've, I volunteered a couple ideas, but I, I really haven't got, didn't have to navigate that industry. And so I, I didn't know that existed. And then when Berenson on June 4th uh, self-published his little pamphlet, his booklet, yep. his first one, uh, and it got blocked and it was all over the news. And, of course, I'm already writing. Like, I've already finished my book. So I'm, I'm, this is all I'm doing is studying this data and information. Berenson's book gets blocked. Um, Elon Musk step, steps in. Uh, the, the, he's on uh, One American News and Fox News that night talking about it, and Amazon breaks down in about four hours and they publish it. It was then that I learned that Amazon had this thing called Kindle Direct Publishing, which is a fantastic thing. So if you order one of my books or one of his or many others, they, they print these paperbacks on demand in addition to having Kindle versions. It's an awesome model. Uh, and so, uh, and Amazon has a, you, you can't make it in publishing without having Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> biggest distribution channel. And so when I learned that, uh, I contracted with somebody actually who was up in uh, closer to you, but uh, uh, in upstate New York, up in Rochester, and, and got some help electronically on doing all this stuff and, and ended up submitting it to Amazon. They blocked it. Uh, so I ended up appealing to um, some people in the media. I sent letters to, to uh, Senator Cruz and Governor Abbott here in Texas uh, and I was also pleading with Amazon every day. And after about a month, Amazon freed it up. I also want to go on record that I actually think Amazon, because they publish so many different things, right? It's not like they're just a, some liberal um, you know, tech company where they won't publish conservative views or contrarian views on anything. I actually believe that Amazon, in the moment, probably had a genuine policy of not publishing anything that was really COVID-related for fear of sponsoring some reckless information. I think it was probably just a policy. They blanketed all the, anything basically COVID-19. I think that my book and Berenson's book and some others at that time, um, I don't have anything against Amazon. I think, I, I think the intent was um, not so much uh, a conspiracy as just a, just a genuine policy. Well, um, I'll take your word for it. Uh, based <laughs> based on things that I'm seeing uh, through, uh, whether it's Google, whether it's YouTube, which are own, is owned by Google, whether it's Facebook or whether it's Amazon, they all seem to be doing about the same thing. And it seems to be a real disservice in my estimation. Well, I think some. Of, I think those are, JB, I think those are I, where I find a little bit, I agree with you on things like Google searches on on various things, and there was a, uh, we can get into this in a bit, but there was a uh, petition that came out called the Barrington something uh, a few days ago or maybe a week ago, and it was led by some uh, world-class epidemiologists, 
and it was a petition to end lockdowns. And so Google had banned searches for that in Europe and Australia and maybe a couple other places. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not blanketing all the tech companies. I'm saying just for Amazon yeah. on these books, I think in the moment, and you'll, you'll notice this if you ever get a chance to go through, through the actual book, but I cut a lot of people slack. For example, I wasn't very critical uh, at all for decisions that were made in the moment of Governor Cuomo or Mayor de Blasio. I don't think those were easy times. I think there was a rush. You've only got a couple days to make these huge decisions with huge risks. Uh, and so, like the nursing home situation, as an example, as you know, Governor Cuomo has caught a lot of flack for that. But I have I wrote this, and I still believe it. In the moment, I don't know that it would have been intuitive to Governor Cuomo. The people that I held accountable for this, and I still do, is you take your um, state health secretaries, you take Dr. Burks, you take Dr. Fauci. We knew from the cruise ships, we knew from China, we knew from Italy that that it was a predominantly of a, a very very predominantly elderly population at risk. It should have been intuitive to those people with healthcare backgrounds that you don't put COVID-19 positive patients into basically an incubator with people that were at the very highest risk. So I, I, I still sort of defend Cuomo, not for things he's done and continued lockdowns, I'm, I'm, but in, for that one decision, I think the healthcare people really have to own this one. Well, I think the the biggest sin as it relates to that particular situation with Governor Cuomo is that he has never come out and apologized or made any kind of uh, contrition um, for for making a, a decision. You know, I think people can be forgiving, but when you've lost, in some cases, both of your elderly parents to a disease because of a bad political decision, uh, you would expect a bit of a... Some kind of a, a you would and, and certainly you know Janice Dean from Fox News lost I think both of her uh, parents-in-law uh, in a nursing facility a nursing a long-term care facility in New York and she's she's been a face of, of some of that uh, look I I uh, I think that Cuomo writing a book about leadership in COVID nineteen if you actually read hardcore data on what was happening in those hospitals again I think a lot of those things are forgivable because they happen in the moment. But when you coach the losing a baseball team, you don't write a book about baseball coaching, <laughs> right? Right. You have to sort of win a championship to be able to write that book, don't you? Yeah. You got, you got to have some feathers in your cap. Um, let's talk about lockdowns in general because that's really the focus of our conversation tonight. You know, we, we, get, we get hit uh, by this COVID information before we get hit by the disease itself there's there's some concern there's some you know people raising an eyebrow there's nobody's really sure what to make of it we're not getting information freely from china we're not getting it from the world health organization the way you would have expected it uh and then it hits hits pretty hard walk us through some of the early decisions that created the lockdown situations so the, the real big one was you had two things happen. You had Italy got slammed early. They were the first country to get slammed. The reason that Italy got hit hard first uh, is a little bit similar to why Detroit, as an isolated city in the middle of the country, got hit. Italy had a thing called the One Belt, One Road, a relationship with China. They were, one of the, only, they were the only EU country to have that relationship. And most of that business, so that's a business partnership, basically. And so they had a lot of um, uh, connections with with China. And in the area that they had that connection, the northern area, the northern area was sort of like 
to Italy what New York City was to New York. Like, New York didn't really get it. Like, it was really New York City, the greater New York City area. And, uh, and so that's what happened in northern Italy. When, they, when the other countries, you know, and let's just say it's for this exercise, it's the U.K. and America, they saw that, and there was definitely panic. And then you had this imperial college model come out that was highly revered, the right Professor Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College. He had um, Boris Johnson's right ear, and so he was, he was, he was the lockdown guy. And, uh, and everybody ran with it. And the puzzling thing to me is that somebody should have said, you know what, and you see a little articles on this in The Lancet if you decide to go into medical journal digging back in that date, but the cruise ship data never supported these, those types of models, and then we just ran with it. And it's been ever since it's been the craziest thing where we almost can't get out of it. It's like, wait two weeks, wait two weeks. And the data is actually really good right now, but, uh, but I don't, I, I mean, I don't even know, maybe the end will be after the election. But anyway, going back to your question of the, how we got kicked off on this, it was really what happened in Italy. Uh, Wuhan had locked down. And then you had that Imperial College model, and there was just a lot of fear. Has, has anything like this been done in history uh, that we're aware of? I mean, we're often given references to the Sp- Spanish flu epidemic or pandemic of the early 20th century. Uh, did they do this then, or is there anything comparable in history to what we're doing now? So the answer is no, but a couple of things on the Spanish flu. So the Spanish flu, one thing that was different uh, about the Spanish flu compared to COVID is the highest risk group within uh, uh, that the Spanish flu claimed were really men between 20 and 40. That's vastly different than COVID-19. And that's one of the reasons that people think that, that uh, the Spanish flu is what effectively ended uh, World War One is soldiers were tra- were um, transmitting right. like crazy, yeah. and uh, and and you know a lot of places. So in in Spanish flu, we lost I think six hundred and seventy five thousand people. I'm going off a little memory here, but I I do know that in today's population numbers, it would be equivalent to one point eight million. So we've lost what two hundred and ten thousand something like that, but uh, COVID nineteen people patient or uh, victims. But we've really lost probably more like 130,000 due to you've got to really dive into the numbers. But we've probably had about 130,000 real COVID-19 deaths. And that's because some deaths are classified as COVID that may not necessarily be COVID deaths. Although someone could, let's say someone dies of a heart attack, but they have COVID in their system. It's listed as a COVID death. I've heard things like this. Right. So. That's all true. So it, it's, it's really two reasons. You have to peel back the, uh, the CDC numbers uh, and really dive into the com- comorbidities. But um, you've got one is, is that uh, states are allowed, most states are including what they call probables. So if they think it was a COVID, they get, they're able to log it as a COVID. So it doesn't have to be a positive test. The other thing is that we've got such amplified testing that we're probably about 50% accurate. And so if somebody dies with COVID within the last 60 days, that could be a COVID death. But to your point, if you look at COVID deaths with, for example, pneumonia or COVID outright, those are probably real COVID deaths. If you look at um, uh, COVID-19 with you know, a cardiac failure or something, there's a, there's a decent chance that you know, that probably wasn't an actual COVID-19 death. So you, you kind of need to 
dive into this, and, and I'm not saying that my data is, is um, bulletproof. It's, it's, again, it's probable. And there's so many, you know, there's so many uncertainties surrounding all of this. And, and you made a very, very good point when you talked about Cuomo. And I don't give him as much slack as you. Um, however, I, I appreciate the point. And you're saying that, you know, a lot of these decisions had to be made under the heat of fire, basically. And with the specter of, of catastrophic loss of life hanging over the decision, uh, how many of the people that were making those decisions early on um, had any more information than, than we had at the time. Uh, were there people that recognized what we see now and what we see in the numbers and the research that you've done, that this maybe wasn't quite the disaster, the looming disaster that it, that they thought it was at the time? So we'll, we'll probably never know that because who's going to say that right publicly. Right. Um, I, I, I think when you look at all the politicians, they're, you know, generally you look at Governor Newsom and, you know, Pritzker and, and Cuomo and, and everybody else, and even, even my governor here, Abbott, you know, they're guys like you and me, meaning they're, you know, they're not, they're not data guys that are studying epidemiology and model, right? They're, they're leaders. They're just, they're doing their thing. Right. And so I don't think they would have really known. And again, the people that should have maybe connected some dots, you know, I, I think that, I think that, um, I think the job that, that CDC Director Redfield and Dr. Fauci have done, I think it's been an unmitigated disaster yeah. because they should have known. Uh, and if you want any, like, sort of forget my opinion on this, they should have known the whole nursing home thing. If there's anything they should have known, it's that COVID is killing almost exclusively. You know, the median age of death for COVID-19 basically ex- exceeds life expectancy in every single country. They did know that. They did have an inkling of that based on what was happening in Italy because nursing homes got ravaged in Italy for a lot of reasons. Healthcare was really uh, not not up to par, and uh, and and so you know you can look at different reasons. But that's who was dying. That data was known before we locked down, right? So let's say we still locked down. Those individuals should have. Um, they should have connected those dots. And then I'd say if there was any other real you know, sort of after action review thing that we really screwed up is we should have, um, we should have sent uh, a team directly into Italy to get firsthand experience of what was going on. It doesn't seem like we did that. And we should have gone to Wuhan. And my, my, I made this argument in my book that we should have practically invaded China with a medical team. Now, you can make the argument that China wouldn't have let us. But, and then I, and my argument was that, you know, you set up a blockade and you, you go in, right? Because as crazy as that sounds, would you have ever dreamt a year ago if we were talking about, you know, nationwide or global lockdowns? No. So all these things, really at this point, anything could have been on the table. And we, sh- that's one thing we probably should have done is practically invade those two countries to see exactly what was happening. A lot of this comes down to when, whenever you hear a debate, and you don't often get to hear a debate because often one side is silenced. But when there is a debate and a discussion about this, it comes down to you know a trade-off, a cost-benefit analysis, which may seem cold to some people when you're talking about the potential loss of human life. But there are, there are, pri- there, there are consequences and there's a price to be paid on the other side as well. So let's talk a little bit about that discussion. You know, one side will say... Hey, listen. We can't let the economy collapse. And the other side said, "Well, if it's going to cost lives, then we shouldn't open." How, how do we balance these ideas? So, what I'd here, you know, one of the things I identified in April, and I wrote, I wrote a, a chapter on this 
By the way, you're a Don. If you pick your songs, you're you're an Eagles or Don Henley guy. And so I titled my chapter on on uh, the media coverage of this. I called it "Dirty Laundry," right from the song. Great song. <laughs> yeah, it was a great song. And uh, and so what you've really got going on now, and you've had this going on for six or seven months, you've got media coverage that has instilled so much fear around cases and around wait two more weeks and around a second wave and around what's going to happen in the winter that I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, you've got a lot of people that are afraid, even now. You know, even here in conservative state Texas, I've got a couple, you know, gun-bearing Second Amendment Trump supporters that won't come over my house to play poker. You know, they're still in that situation, and my liberal friends will come over. So there's genuine fear out there, J.V., and, the, and that's given the politicians the green light to kind of perpetuate this. So I don't think there is a balanced discussion about from your perspective. What you're talking about is balancing, right, this, this um, consequence of the lockdowns versus the health risk. I don't even think that there's a viable debate within leaders because the media isn't really perpetuating that. There's no balanced. The only people talking about us being reopened are really the primetime anchors on Fox and OAN and, you know, Newsmax. But all the major networks, the major media outlets, they're all perpetuating the lockdowns. And so your average person picks that stuff up from social media and from hearsay. They're genuinely afraid. They're still genuinely afraid. We have heard throughout history, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a student of history, but I, I'm, I'm an amateur student of history at best. Um, but I know that often when you talk about dictators, you talk about Adolf Hitler, you talk about communist dictators, they often say fear is the, mo- is the way to con- control the population. Fear is how you get people to succumb to uh, you know whatever might seem unreasonable yesterday. If you have the right threat in front of them, it'll be reasonable today. Um, are we seeing a bit of that? You know, I never connected this dot until you just said that, but it does, by the way, you could read my book and not know who I voted for, and you could, you know, I've done a hundred of these interviews and I don't get political. I feel like it's a data argument and I try to make, make a, just a reasonable plea to all Americans, you know, to sure. sort of embrace the, the data. But, you know, when you think about liberals, they, they, they uh, Democrats, they, you know, where they pounced on President Trump four years ago was saying, He's instilling fear into his constituents to get them to vote for him. Um, I, I didn't see it that way. I think he, I think he got voted because he had a better economic plan, and I think it ends there. But, uh, but I do think you're right. People are afraid. I mean, we went to Jackson Hole climbing, my son and I, over the summer. People are like in the, in a national park where there's, you know, it's empty, right? I'm not empty, but you know, people are driving around with masks. Right. In a national park. I mean. The, it just shows you people are there's a lot of people that are still afraid uh and it's it's that media coverage the um lockdowns themselves i believe that they were first started in march of this year and i remember president trump saying by easter we're going to be done with it you could tell back then that president trump recognized the cost that these lockdowns were having uh just by themselves. Um, but he was basically shouted down by this media that you're talking about. And it can, the, anybody who can, offers that same uh, opinion gets shouted down. Um, at what point did the media become the arbiter of, of fact and fiction? Well, they became early on. And so you can, you can, we can 
have a separate debate on whether it had a political motivation or not. I'm, I'm you know, back in even March and April. But I, you know, my friends, when I started this and we, you know, we'd get together, we were all locked down, right? I mean, we, when they'd come over to play cards, we closed our blinds because we weren't <laughs> supposed to even do anything. Right. So, uh, so, and I told them, hey, this thing's going to unwind. I can, I'm studying the data every day. This thing's going to unwind by May 1st, trust me. Well, it really did unwind by May 1st in terms of what would be, what was expected, right? We knew it wasn't going to happen. And really, you know, one thing that people don't understand is that the healthcare industry went, you know, if they didn't get CARES bailout, they would have gone broke. Hospitals were That's ghost right. towns oh, yeah. for, you know, for a couple months. And so, you know, going back to your question about, you know, what happened in March and April, I think the media ran with this. And so if when President Trump, you know, if you remember Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia, he was the really, they were the first kind of big state to, to reopen. I think that was right around maybe April 26th or something like that. And, uh, and, and, Trump said on TV when, when that was, they asked him a question about that, he said, I think it's too early for that. Well, you know he's thinking, thank God somebody like, you know, took the first step, right? right, right. But he didn't, I, I think the media coverage, you know, he just didn't, in an election year, just, you know, he, had to, he said what he said. But uh, thank goodness for, you know, Ron DeSantis and what Florida's, you know, completely reopened and we'll be watching that. But anyway, that's what I think happened, kind of how that played out in, in you know, March and April. We have uh, such contradictions from the people that were advising, not just our political figures, but actually uh, t- communicating to us through interviews and news programs. And when you go back you uh, and you watch some of the interviews and listen to some of the things that Fauci was saying, that uh, you know the Surgeon General was saying, that the World Health Organization was saying, that the quote-unquote experts were saying, and it completely contradicts, in many cases, what they're saying now. Um, and then we're, 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 we're ridiculed for asking questions. Don't you think that by those very contradictions from the, those very people that would, that would require us to be asking questions? Well, yes. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of say a few, few words about sort of how you frame that up. So it's really like what happened before the lockdowns? What was sort of the school of thought? So just to walk you through there were, there's been documentation uh, all over the place, and it includes the CDC and the WHO that had condemned in previous, if you look at things that were documented over the last 15 or 20 years, they had basically renounced lockdowns as ever being an effective measure, a total lockdown. So those are documented, they're in record, and you can find those. Um, and, and then you've got, uh, you've got documentation that exists very, like, almost ubiquitous, prior to COVID that basically said that if you're wearing anything less than an N95, you know, a surgical mask all the way down to some kind of face covering, they're ineffective at, at um, blocking viral uh, particles. Right. And the reason is those pores and those types of, of masks are a thousand times larger than a viral particle. So we'll get into masks maybe in a little bit. But so there's documentation that basically renounced lockdowns and masks. In February, you've got our Surgeon General who said, don't go buying masks. They're not, you know, they're not going to do anything. Fauci said the same thing. Redfield said the same thing. Somehow the tide, and I believe it's just the media prompting this, the tide changed. And I think some of it was media coverage and some of it is we've got to do something. We can't tell the American people we're going to lock down and we can't, you know, they just have to live with us. So, you know, they've got to, what can Americans do? Well, they can wear a mask, right? Uh, And so I think those are the types of things that, they've 
implemented or sort of driven home that didn't exist. None of that data or those types of recommendations existed before COVID-19. You mentioned it's the- fascinating to study, by the way. I mean, if you look at the before and afters, it's, it's so one great one. <laughs> this is probably the favorite one. Uh, and if you ever want to pop me an email offline and I'll share some of this, you're, uh, you know, I'm happy to share anything. But, uh, but I wrote in the last chapter of my book, uh, there was an, uh, a thing in the oral health guide or magazine, a dentist, dentist journal. And they, it was a 2017 article. And they basically said there's no reason for anybody to wear a mask for even bacterial blockage, let alone viral. And they went through you know, a pretty lengthy thing. It had like 37 footnotes or references from other journals. That article got redacted in <laughs> the late spring of this year. So I found it in the archives. And so if you go to the main link, and I, I actually, it's in my book. It's in the last chapter. I screenshotted it. But if you look at the um, original article, it says, due to the current climate or something like that, this information is no longer valid. And I'm dying to reach out to the main author, this doctor, right? Because they're basically saying, well, you know, all your science was good enough before, but it's not good now. And, and that's where we are. That's that's where we are right now. It's insanity. There have been doctors, uh, very well respected doctors, who have come out and and um, said lockdowns aren't the way to go here. Uh, there was a video that was famously uh, done by two doctors in California that was immediately removed by YouTube. There, right. there, uh, obviously a group of sci- uh, scientists right now that have is it the Bennington Project? I can't remember the name of the. What's the there's a Barrington group, Barrington I'm sorry yes the Barrington um, group and uh, they are they are experts in um, in in this field of study and they're saying that we're handling this incorrectly and we're causing more damage than we are uh, solving um, yet these folks are being scrubbed from social media they're being scrubbed from uh, digital presence they're being uh, their their work is not being published in medical journals. They're being blacklisted in many, many ways. Why is it that some science is more equal than other science yeah, in this it's, day it's and a age? Great, it's a great question. To tell you how wacky this thing is, in the chapter on the models, which immediately followed the cruise ship chapter in my book, I was, I was kind of given almost a day-by-day chronology of how this thing was, was playing out because I, I thought that's the only way to tell this story is how fast it was. So you've got that Imperial College model that, uh, that came out, and a about five or six days later, Sunetra Gupta, who's from Oxford, who is the, who's the leader of this Barrington project, uh, she's, she's so level-headed and a, you know, just insanely uh, intelligent. And she's been saying kind of all along. And so she, she went to that Imperial College model, and she said, I believe many of the assumptions in this are incorrect. I don't believe there will be an... 81% infection rate, nor the fatalities, based on you know what I'm seeing, and you're going to have some natural immunity that isn't factored into this, and she she crushed it. So then the very next day, uh, the author of that Imperial College uh, model, Neil Ferguson, the next day he came out and said, where originally our 2.2 million deaths were 500,000 in the UK predicted, he came back and said, well, it'll probably be more like 20,000 deaths in the UK, and probably over half of those people would have died this year anyway. <laughs> and I'm looking at this like, oh my God, like you're just, you're, you're basically saying, you, you know, a, a, a tiny fraction of what you just predicted 
is probably what's going to happen now, and, the, and only 10 days have passed, like really, which really means nothing. So it's nuts. It, it's almost, if you saw a movie of how this played out in March, you, you'd almost think, oh, this is, just, this is like the movie Outbreak or something. It's fiction. Again, tonight, Michael Beatrice is our guest. Michael, before we continue the discussion, where can people get the book? On Amazon? Is there anywhere else it's available, or is that the, the place to go? That's the place to go. It's on Amazon. All right, let's talk about the cost of these lockdowns. You mentioned earlier in our discussion that uh, hospitals were basically ghost towns in the early part of this pandemic because, uh, well, for a lot of different reasons, people were afraid to go. Uh, Some people weren't allowed to go. Um, I have a good friend, in fact, my best friend here in Cooperstown, who is an executive at, at the local hospital here, and he has told me these stories, and these are devastating to the budgets of hospitals that barely survive as it is. Uh, I know that's one of the costs. Talk about some of the other costs of lockdowns. Right. And, and to honestly, I, if there weren't costs of the lockdowns, I wouldn't have written this book, right? I mean, it's a lockdowns on trial. I wrote the book because of the huge cost of the lockdowns. If it was a sort of a vacuum lockdown to, to insulate us from this virus that was a little bit unknown, you know, or certainly unknown, uh, it wouldn't have been a story. It's, it's what we did. You know, it's the countermeasures, right? And so you've got huge collateral consequences as a result of the lockdown. So you can start with um, a, a very, I mean, the, I, honestly, the two that have probably, the, the one that prompted me to write this book was the unemployment. But even that's almost taking a backseat as I've gotten so immersed in this to two other things. One is um, what's happened to children and the fact that they are um, in many places unable to uh, participate in activities. Less than half of our kids, um, you know, K to 12 are actually in face-to-face learning right now. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, But one thing that that also has gone unnoticed um, in the spirit of what you just said about your best friend is it's not just that hospitals were going broke. It's that people with non-emergency uh, ailments, they weren't unable to be treated. And so when you'd hear this on TV, like if it's, a, it's an elective surgery, we're postponing those, that makes it sound like it's a facelift or something, right? right. That's not what was happening, right? My brother is a urologist. He's a surgeon in Michigan. And he, he spent most of April, um, you know, going fishing. That's what he does. And I talked to my my primary care physician, and, you know, they weren't able to see patients. And it wasn't until I started talking to some other doctors that I realized that, you know, Baylor Scott is a huge hospital chain in Texas, and they were ready to lay off a hundred and some surgeons. And they announced this to them in in April that if we didn't open up by June, if they didn't open up, they were going to lay them all off. It's a a crazy thought. But there's a lot of people that, uh, that were not able to get things treated, and you're seeing that now. And so we've got two categories of our excess deaths. We've got actual COVID deaths that have prompted this, and then we've got lockdown deaths. We'll get into that in a little bit. But, but back to your lockdown consequences. So one of the things is people that had ailments uh, and they were unable to get them treated. That is a serious thing. <clears throat> so that's a big cost. And, 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 is, and not just untreated, um, but undiagnosed in a lot of cases, undiagnosed. right? Undiagnosed. Right. And so both. like malignant neoplasms, right? There's, there's a lot of cancers that have gone not just untreated, but undiagnosed. So our cancer, uh, our cancer diagnosis is down significantly. So there was a, there was a, 
um, some cancer organization. It's cited in my book, but I forgot what it is, top of mind. But they, they predicted that there would be, you know, something like 30,000 additional breast cancer deaths alone just simply by these lockdowns of people that didn't get things diagnosed timely. And that list is, is uh, you know, it's growing as we look, get more information about this, but that's a serious thing. I mean, I called it in April that we would end up with more lockdown deaths than COVID-19 deaths by 2022. It's going to happen by probably 1Q21. Wow. Wow. And, and, and you know, the, the thing that's amazing, if, if preventing deaths was our objective here, um, you'd think this, this discussion would allow, be allowed to filter through those that are filtering out uh, the debate. It's, un, it's, it's just I, I can't get my head around it. So what you've really got is you've got such incredibly cautionary leaders, and the media has driven that, and there's polls. So a, a Gallup poll came out a couple days ago, and based by political party, it was amazing. But by the way, even Republicans on this, this poll were only like, you know, 64% or 54% we should reopen and get back to normal. But when the question was asked to Democrats, should we return to normal? Only 3% said yes. Wow. Now, I'm telling you, it's not just Trump and the election. There's people that are genuinely afraid of this. Okay, so going back to your question about lockdowns costs, one of my big hot buttons the last few weeks has really been children and what's going on with education. So right now you've got either you've got half the kids in the country that aren't able to go face-to-face, and then of the places they can go face-to-face, They've got, in most places, they have the option, in fact, probably all places, they've got the option to either go online or face-to-face. So I'll give you a quick case study. So I know some high school kids at Allen High School. That's the biggest high school in Texas. 7,000 kids go to this high school. And a huge football stadium. It's bigger than most, you know, small colleges. And they've got an option to go face-to-face or go online. So I asked some of the students, what happens, like who's attending class? And they said, you know, it's actually kind of cool because the kids that are face-to-face, they want to be there. And so the, the lower achievers, the kids that aren't so interested, they're the ones that are opting to go online, right. generally speaking. I'm yeah. generalized. No, I think it's, so, a fair, it's a fair generalization. So hold that for just a second. Just kind of put a peg in that one for a sec. Then you've got situations like I, I uncovered uh, where in Louisiana – 50% of the kids in 50% of the school districts don't even have computers or access to the Internet. So what you've got is you've got kids taking classes at hotspots like Starbucks or McDonald's, and when their battery – I mean, I'm, I've seen this. I literally have seen this with high school kids in Texas before the schools opened up. So you've got basically underachieving, disadvantaged kids that don't have access or resources to tutors and things like that or home disciplines – and they're going to fall behind even further. So this is becoming, you know, one of my catchphrases is where COVID-19 uh, as, a, as an illness has really preyed on the physically frail. The lockdowns have really preyed on the socially and economically frail. So you're going to see disadvantaged kids fall even further behind because they don't have the resources and access. And a lot of those happen to be in predominantly Democrat-led areas. And I'm not playing a political card here. But those are the areas that are harder locked down than conservative areas. It's just, just a fact. And, uh, and I think that's just a devastating experience for kids. Um, and so you, when you look at the unemployment situation and how states have sort of said, okay, this is, 
we're going to basically not enable you to work, but you'll get more unemployment benefits. What they've done with kids is they've said, okay, well, since you're going to probably fall behind and this is a jacked-up year, in that case, we aren't going to require, you know, colleges aren't going to require you to, you to submit SAT or ACT scores. So, like, we're, we're you know, it's almost like we're preventing everybody from optimizing their potential, and then we're going to try to make it up to them through some, some government policy. It's just terrible. It is terrible. Um, one of the things I've heard quite a bit about, uh, I'll say two, I'll give you two things to address here. One is the idea that a lot of children, particularly disadvantaged children, receive um, a good deal of their nutrition from right. meal programs at schools. The second thing is talk a little bit about uh, the lack of social interaction affecting the mental health not just of children, but primarily of children. Um, is that a real phenomena? Is that something that we're really going to have to deal with? So I've got a friend in California. She used to work for me a few years ago. She works for a major company. I won't say who it is. She promised me publicly never to do that. She works for a major brand out in California in the Bay Area. And her her CEO uh, has, had, uh, had a son who was suffered from depression in alone. I mean, it wasn't on drugs or anything, but he just, she knew him, but he was just a depressed kid. And he felt very isolated, you know, for four or five months because he really couldn't do a whole lot uh, in terms of interacting with his friends and going places and just doing things. And he committed suicide at a day that he would have been in school at the very end of August. And she called me up in tears and she said, and she's, a, by the way, she's a progressive liberal. We're good friends. She's a progressive liberal. And she was in tears saying, Michael, I am done with this. I am done with these lockdowns, 2020. But your question of is it real, it's real, JV. It's real. This, the depression and the, 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 what's happening to disadvantaged kids, um, you know, if you're an upper middle class kid and even if you're not in school, your parents are going to kind of bridge this, this transition gap for you. They I think I believe that in most cases. It wasn't in this particular case I just mentioned because their family was, you know, a nine-figure family, but it just happened. But, um, but if you're in a disadvantaged situation, you are going to suffer from the nutrition. And it was actually one of the noble things I thought Mayor de Blasio, um, one of his motivations behind not locking down in early uh, or in mid-March, not closing the schools, he, he actually had noticed that, and I, I think that was a noble observation. We can't close schools because kids are going to lose their meals. I, you know, that, that's, a, that's kind of a selfless thought. Uh, where we are today in New York is a different story uh, in, the, in the New York City area. But no, I, the, the, the deaths of despair is what they call that. And so we will, Australia had done a study where this was actually back in June, but they predicted that they would have more suicides than COVID-19 deaths. What's happened in Australia over the last, 90 days is obscene. The lock, I mean, they've got a militant lockdown going on. I mean, just wait and see how this thing's going to play out there. Let's talk about some um, other models and other nations uh, that are either handling it differently, whether it's more extreme than us or less extreme than us. One of the models that's often held up is the Swedish model, what Sweden ended up doing. How does that yep. compare to what we did? 
Great question. So Sweden is the poster child for, you know, sort of uh, not doing the opposite of what everybody else did. They did not lock down. Uh, they did not close their uh, schools, I think, at least up to eighth grade. They didn't close anything down or require anything other than I think they, they limited uh, social uh, groups to like 50 or under or something like that. So they had um, – the, the U.S. has just crept ahead of them in terms of deaths per million – but uh, but they they had their moment. It, you know, if you look at these curves all over the place, all these countries have their moments, and these curves sweep through in a few weeks, and the deaths follow that because deaths lag two or three weeks, and then usually you get out of it. So Sweden is probably, by any measure, at a herd immunity status because they aren't even recording cases, let alone hospitalizations and deaths. Now, here's what's interesting, if you can follow me for a sec. The one thing that, that a lot of people in the media have done, or even, even people in science and, medic- and healthcare, they've said, well, Sweden got hit a lot harder than Norway and Finland, kind of the, the neighboring Scandinavian countries. So I read an interview recently, just last week, with like whoever the doctor, I forgot her name, but the Dr. Redfield of, of Norway. And she said the reason that, um, she said, first of all, the Swedish model was the right way to go. We, we should not have locked down like we did. And they've had only like 50 deaths per million compared to, you know, Sweden's much, much higher. Uh, and, but what she said was the reason that Sweden got hit so hard is because the last two years um, we had higher excess deaths from the flu, um, us and Finland, and Sweden actually did not have any excess deaths. She said, and so what happens is you've got what they call dry tinder, which is people that are very susceptible to this. And that's what happened in Sweden. That's why they had, you know, probably a disproportionate number of deaths than their neighboring countries, uh, neighboring Scandinavian uh, countries, is because of this dry tinder. I really hadn't heard that before, and, and it wasn't somebody from Sweden saying that. It was somebody from Norway. So Sweden's got this model. They... And they're through it. By any measure, they're through it. You can see videos all over the place online of people shopping and going out. And it's, it, you really, it's like COVID never happened. And so what we're doing with these lockdowns is you've got, uh, do you know who Scott Atlas is? I don't, I don't think I know that name. Scott Atlas is from the Hoover Institute. He's from Stanford. And he's now uh, one of the key guys on President Trump's, or on the, the uh, federal government's, uh, task force, coronavirus task force team. And Scott Atlas, he's, he's the only voice of reason in Washington right now. But Scott is a big proponent of you can't lock everybody down, and the consequences are way too high. There's too few people at risk, and you, herd immunity is the only logical way through this, which is where Sweden is now. So he's getting a lot of flack from a lot of people because he really doesn't have Redfield and Fauci on his side, nor the media. So He's kind of fighting an uphill battle. But, but if you look at the data in New York City, there's really no way other than herd immunity to explain how it died off so fast. Like you take a place like um, New York City right now is measuring less than 1%, I think. I mean, it fluctuates, but it's, a, it's maybe 1% of hospital capacity is dedicated to COVID-19 patients. And they've had, you know, basically – maybe, you know, not even, not even 1% of daily deaths for, you know, two or three or four months for COVID. You tell me how you can sustain that type of performance for four months in the biggest city in the world and lock it down. 
how do you lock down New York City for this long when they basically have registering no hospitalizations um, or deaths? And they get a tiny, tiny little spike in cases in Brooklyn and Queens and a few zip codes, and they've got that locked down. And I just saw on the news yesterday, they've given out something like 1,500 fines of people that have violated you know, their lockdown order in these zip codes. You're from Cooperstown. You've been to New York, right? You've oh, been yeah. To New York. <laughs> Many you times. can't take a tiny little zip code in New York City no. and lock it down when people are just going to walk a few blocks away or drive a mile Right, it's the stupidest. Yeah, I, th- I thought absurd. I thought the same thing when I when I heard that on the news as well. I'm thinking the zip code is it basically can be a block in Manhattan. Um, you know, it, it, it seemed ludicrous to me. Um, I want to ask you about Sweden, though. Um, do we have any numbers or data that uh, addresses the idea that Sweden as a nation may now have uh, a higher immunity? Uh, therefore won't be subject to uh, new spikes of COVID? Do we know anything about that? So I haven't seen, it could exist. I haven't seen actual data on what, you know, what you're asking is, have there, has there been any substantial random sampling testing done in Sweden to indicate what the immunity level might be there? And I haven't seen that. It may exist, but I haven't seen or heard of it. I think, but, and, and so sort of, JV, where we, where we, we all sort of lose our way in this, is you've almost got to zoom out of this and maybe, uh, you know, our leaders, when they, they look at Sweden, you've got to zoom out and look at the big picture. If, if, and I almost feel this about New York, too. If you're not getting cases and you're not getting hospitalizations and nobody's dying anymore of COVID and this is sustained for three or four months, you, there's a point when you just have to say we're, we're done, yeah. right? We might keep an eye on it, but we're done. We're, going, we're, you know, we're letting everybody get back to normal. And that's the situation that, for example, Michigan is in right now. Michigan has higher cases, but their death and hospitalizations are down to you know, very, very low numbers. Uh, you know, the Chicago area is down. I did see a random sampling that Chicago is at about a 20% uh, immunity phase based on samplings, and Texas and Florida could be in the 25% range, that might get you home. But anyway, is there more questions that you have specifically about Sweden or any other European countries? Well, um, no, other than, uh, you know, I keep hearing about, uh, you know, new spikes uh, in, in the continent, in Europe, and uh, I'm not sure how much of that is is actual or if it's hype. I don't, you know, it's so hard to know what to believe. So, it, it, so... What you're hearing over and over in America and Europe is cases. And, and there's a, a couple of things with cases. The, the term case, the word case sort of, it, it feels like a hospitalization. It feels like somebody's sick, the word case. It's a positive test is what these are. And these positive tests are amplified. The way they do, is, do this is they'll, these PCR tests is they'll take a test, they convert the RNA to DNA, and they amplify it. Uh, a lot. They double the amplification every single time. By the time you amplify it 20 times, you're looking for, you know, viral remnants of SARS-CoV-2. And uh, you're at about, you know, a billion by the time you do it 20 times. And that seems to be about the standard. We do it in America up to 40 times is our standard. And so you're looking for any little remnant, which could have, you know, could be, you know, the, the lab could be have, you know, I mean, it's there's just the integrity of that isn't good. Right. So what you're seeing in Europe right now, you're not seeing high 
Like you, the U.K., for example, is ready to go into another lockdown. I pulled up their hospitalization numbers. They're, they're you know, they're, they were like 4% or something. You know, but their cases are higher. And you're seeing higher cases in different place, parts of Europe, and, but you're not seeing commensurate hospitalizations and deaths. If you looked at all these data, uh, all the data in these countries in April and May, you would see these exact curves. You'd see these exact bell-shaped curves of, of cases, and then you could overlay hospitalization curves just past it because there's a lag. Mm-hmm. They look the same, mm-hmm. and the death curves look the same. Now it doesn't look the same. Now you're seeing these big case curves, but you're not seeing the same uh, hospitalizations and deaths. So it's either that younger, healthier people are catching it, which is true, and you're seeing amplified testing, and you're seeing better treatments. Just point, I mean, honestly, without being partisan here, yeah. look at Trump, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, Trump got out of this in a couple of days. Right. Um, you, uh, you threw out a, uh, what has become a bit of a dirty word here, and it's the word curve. When all this started, when we were first told, okay, stay home, shelter in place, all those things, it was all about flattening the curve, which really translates into we don't want too many people sick all at once because our healthcare system won't be able to handle exactly. that influx, so we want it to spread out. When did it change? When did this whole thing change from just being able to manage our healthcare system and handling the influx of people to trying to prevent this virus from spreading at all costs. Right. I, I think it was the media coverage. I mean, it happened in May because in April, uh, you know, you heard President Trump saying, we, you know, we think by Easter, you know, we might be able to open up. Well, Trump was, you know, he was looking at these curves and his team or, you know, and, and the curves really suggested that. But you had over and over, people saying, well, no, what if, what if, what up? Let's, well, let's wait two weeks. And we've been waiting two weeks for six months. Yeah. And, and there, there is no good logical reasoning explanation I can give you for that. It doesn't make any sense at this stage. We've, we've, you know, you've heard the expression over and over about moving the goalposts. Yep. And we went from, it was so obvious even by April 10th that we weren't going to have hospital bed shortages anywhere not even in New York City. Well, that the, the, that Navy ship, the Comfort or what, the the hospital Comfort. ship, thousand beds, whatever it was, barely took a patient. I yeah, I mean you know, and uh, that was for overflowing on COVIDs, but yeah, it took it materially speaking, um, that took no patients, and uh, and the uh, what's the the uh, is it the Kravitz Center in New York the J- City? The, the Javits Center. The Javits Center. The Javits Center, the Javits Center, and the Convention Center. Yep. So they had they had put together, you know, a couple thousand beds there, uh, provisional, and those never got used either. And uh, and so, you know, by the way, those are all really good things. Like, you know, here in Dallas, they'd set up our convention center with provisional beds, and you know, our our main hospitals, like, there were tumbleweeds blowing down down the halls. Um, in fact, a couple neighborhood kids, friends of mine, friends of my son. They took care packages down to Parkland. Parkland is the main hospital in Dallas. That's where President Kennedy That's was right. taken. Mm-hmm. And uh, they took a care package saying, hey, we wanted to give this to the frontline workers. They came over for dinner the next night and said, the nurses laughed at us and said, there's nothing going on here, right? And they walked them down the halls, and they were closed. I mean, they were darkened. They were darkened because they couldn't have non-COVID patients, and they didn't have any COVID patients. <laughs> I don't know when this curve thing, you know, we – the curve couldn't be flatter. The curve, yeah. <laughs> if you, you know, hospitalizations is the only number with any integrity, and that curve is flat. We're, we're at no higher than 6.6% 6. 6 
in any single state in the country right now. Uh, and you've got Christy Noam in, in South Dakota catching a bunch of flack because she's yeah. at 6.6%. And they're like, oh, well, you know, there goes Christy Noam. You know, she, she resisted lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Okay, but 6.6%, she's smart, right? She did the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was supposed Maybe to be. Crazy. I, I was supposed to be at Sturgis this year. I ended up not going, um, but for other because the buddy who I told you about, who's a high, uh, hospital executive, he was prohibited from going because he and I were we're taking our Harleys and going together. Um, I've had some questions scrolling through our, one of our chat rooms about false positives and false negatives. Do we have any stats on that? Well, so the false positives, yeah, the the, the rough answer is around fifty percent. It's very. That's why I'm telling you. Of both? False positive and po- false negatives? Uh, well, I've only... No, I, no, I've never heard of false negatives. I've only heard of the false positives. Okay. Uh, uh, as, in terms of anything I can quote, but it, it seems to hover around 50%. And, uh, and so a lot of that is due to the, this amplification of testing, and some of it is just plain errors. Like, if you pay any attention to this stuff, you'll notice the NFL is doing different testing than the rest of the country because they're not buying into this and they're not putting their, you know, their business at risk. And so they've got an amplification of more like 20, 18 or 20, compared to the countries doing you know, somewhere in the 30s up to 40. But false positives is real. That's why you want to know what's going on somewhere. You need to look at their hospitalizations, not the cases. The cases number is a... Uh, I'd say it has almost a 50% margin of error in it. And and anybody that wants to call me on that, there should be some correlating. If you believe COVID is that real or dangerous, there would be more correlating relationships between these huge case curves you're seeing with hospitalizations. You know, and I'm no doctor. I've got no medical training whatsoever other than having been a parent. Um, But it seems to me... uh, the nature of this virus or most viruses is there's no stopping it. The only stopping it is if we get a vaccine that works, that may stop it essentially. But the other uh, way to stop it is this herd immunity concept or just the fact that um, we will develop uh, immunities ourselves to this. I mean, it it seems as though this is a futile exercise in trying to stop something that we can't possibly stop. Right. So pretty much all cold viruses are coronaviruses. Not this one, but they are coronaviruses. And it does, we know that, we don't know exactly what the number is. You couldn't really know that. But um, we think that the number of, of um, T-cell immunity Americans, you know, it could be, you know, 20 to, you know, 30, whatever percent. And so that means that if you get to a 25% threshold, and this is documented in, in the Lancet and a couple of different journals, articles, uh, you could, we could be at an immunity phase. That's why you're probably going to see with Florida opening up and, you know, they're going to, they're going to, the Gators are going to be playing in their full stadium soon. Uh, when you don't see uh, things start to fall apart there, that will be why. Uh, one call out on your Sturgis thing, right? So when Sturgis happened, Christy Nome in South Dakota caught a lot of flack for that. That's right. And there was an article that came out right after the Sturgis event that predicted uh, 250,000 cases would be... I, saw, I read that article, yes. They might come in the, in the aftermath of that, and it might cost like a billion dollars. Right. So it caught all kinds of headlines, right? Well, there was one fatality with somebody that was over 65 with comorbidities that died, and, and that, that's probably real, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, to me, that was, Sturgis was a success story for us. 
to really promote. And yeah. instead, what you heard about was, oh, my God, what might happen as a right. result of Sturgis? Right. And when nothing happened, you never heard about it, that, did you? That's exactly right. And by the way, I want to back up a little bit. I absolutely know who Scott Atlas is. I looked him up and I saw his picture. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen interviews with him a 100 times Uh um, and he is a voice of reason, so I, I do know who he is. He's great. He's yeah. just uh, he's just so reasonable and logical, and he's you know he's 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 sailing against the headwind. And, well, he took uh, a lot of heat recently because he was misquoted about something. I don't remember the specifics of it, but I remember he came on to talk about it at one point. Yeah, I'm not sure what that was. I, uh, one of the things that came up recently, this was a couple weeks ago, was apparently Redfield, uh, CDC Director Redfield, was on a uh, flight from Atlanta to D.C., and there was a journalist uh, who had reported this on MSNBC, and she was apparently uh, sitting behind him, and she quoted, not him, but she quoted saying Redfield was on the phone during the flight saying Scott Atlas doesn't know what he's talking about. But here's the thing. If you look at all these pandemics, whether you look at the Hong Kong flu, and the uh, Spanish flu and the Asian flu, those are, you know, are sort of our 20th century pandemics. They all fizzled out due to immunity. They didn't right. fizzle out due to vaccines. That's right. And, and then when you look at what's happening in Sweden and, you know, again, New York City and some of the places I cited, it's hard to, it's hard to refute the logic of what Dr. Atlas is saying. It just makes sense, right? You don't, I don't think you need to be... You know, I tweeted some of this information out, and somebody tweeted back and said, are you an epidemiologist? Where did you go to school? And I'm like, oh, my God, right? I can just read data. (laughs) Like, can't you just see what's in front of you? I've been saying recently that uh, when science disagrees with common sense, you better take another look at the science. Uh, Yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. That's right. And the common sense simply says COVID-19 is real, and if you're – elderly, or you've got a couple of these comorbidities, you should keep a low profile, which is what I've told my 89-year-old parents to do. Everybody else needs to just get back. And for sure, you know, there's not one documented documented instance of a single death or hospitalization as a result of schools reopening in the world, (laughs) and we are still locked down from schools. Insanity. I want to, in a few minutes we have left, I want to ask you about uh, some, some more of the economic consequences here. My sister owns two restaurants, one which is a nightclub restaurant. They have not reopened because current restrictions say that if you are a quote unquote nightclub restaurant, you can only uh, have 25% capacity. Well, you can't. You can't even pay your bills on 25% capacity in the restaurant business. The other restaurant they had fortunately had some uh, outdoor seating, which in upstate New York, that's the time for that is quickly coming to an end because of the weather. Um, Right. And there there are statistics that somewhere up uh, close to 50% of restaurants, I don't know if this is national or New York State, will not reopen uh, once all of this ends because they just won't be able to survive. This is a real economic apocalypse that's 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 that we're going to wake up finding ourselves in yeah you know what it really is in the for the restaurant industry particular i've really equated it to being uh you know it's really like you know national park catching on fire and it's going to burn it to the ground and then you're going to have a rebirth and that's the only way you get through this Uh, i mean it is sinful these people that have put their own you know livelihoods and businesses but you're I believe that. I believe that from everything I've studied, you will see most of these places close, and then you will see eventually a rebirth. But yeah. you know, I went out. I went out to a small business place for dinner um, uh, last week, and I was talking to the owner. People, and this is in North Texas, pretty conservative area, and. 
the guy said, well, we have a lot of outdoor seating, but really nobody wants to sit indoors. And I said, oh, well, then they're afraid. He goes, well, I guess. Is that what you think? I go, yeah, if they're willing to sit outside and not sit inside, that means they're afraid. Um, and, you know, this is a time when Dallas is 90 degrees. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real tragedy all the way around. And, I, I, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book, JV, is because my son and I always talk about, like, how will President Trump or how will such and such president, how will these people be remembered in history? And then I've always told him, history gets remembered by the people that document it. And so I actually wanted to be one of the guys that documented this. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for your work. Just another comment about restaurants. Uh, in in the best of times, they're a difficult business to yeah. to survive in, and uh, it's just it's just a real tragedy as to what's happening. We are out of time. I have another hundred questions I could ask you, and I love this conversation, and I truly appreciate you coming on uh, tonight, Michael, and and chatting with me about this because I'm fascinated about what's going on. I think we're living living in a time right now that, as you said, in uh, you know when we look back at it from a historical perspective, they're going to want to be a lot of people saying, "What the hell were they thinking?" Maybe. It really depends on how history gets documented. And again, that's why I did this. But listen, I really enjoyed the talk. It's nice to have a lot of space and in a discussion, and I would love to come back and speak with you anytime. I hope you're willing to do that, because I'd love to have you back. Now, once again, let people know where they can find the book. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's um, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, and it's available exclusively on Amazon. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.